0: Hi, this is Jim Wetrich, author of Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. And you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel.
1: Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today on episode four hundred four is Jim Wetrich. Jim Wetrich is the CEO of the Wetrich Group of Companies. From two thousand six to twenty fourteen, Jim built a team at Monleca, a Swedish healthcare organization, that grew the revenue over seven times and twenty x the EBITDA, creating over one billion dollars' growth in enterprise value by boosting the U.S. business unit from fifth place to first place with an employee satisfaction index of over ninety five percent. Having led teams in the United States, South America, and Europe for more than 40 years and consulting with over a 100 companies, Jim has seen great leaders who have thrived and ones that have failed. He is now focused on mentoring and coaching leaders of today. Jim lives in the greater Dallas, Texas area, and he's here to talk about his book, Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. Welcome, Jim.
0: Thank you very much, Bill. It's a pleasure and a delight and an honor to be with you and it's your pleasure listeners. Pleasure to have you. Thank you for and the tell opportunity. Me,
1: when you were growing up, Jim, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you?
0: Yeah, Bill, when I turned 16 and was able to get a job, my first boss, a grocery store manager at a chain of grocery stores in Southern California called Stater Brothers, his name was Dave Gammon. David showed me firsthand what a great manager and great leader can do and can be. He certainly was one of the finest and best leaders I've ever been around. It just changed my life in terms of realizing a work can be fun, a manager can be great, even in a position like that of bagging groceries, not particularly too exciting. He was one of those people you look forward to getting to work every day. He was just so energizing and fun to be around.
1: You talk about him being a great manager and helping to make you look forward to coming to work to bag groceries. And you and I both know we could be in the company of people and having conversations like we are with everyone else. And then all of a sudden, somebody makes a comment, somebody tells a story. Somebody shows you a different way of doing things, and all of a sudden you realize this person is a part. He is not of the ordinary but he's a step above the ordinary. Do you remember an example of him having a conversation with you or showing you how to do something where you realized he either took a special interest in you or he
0: had a way of doing things that was just better than others? Well, two things come to mind, Bill. First of all, Dave never told people to do anything. He asked people to do it and he'd do it themselves. When we needed more people bagging groceries in the front or we needed more people stocking shelves or we needed more people doing whatever, he would ask people to do it, but then he would do it himself. He wasn't one of these people that just sat back, went up to his office on the second floor, looked down and directed traffic. He was in the fray. He was taking people's carts out to the car and helping him load their groceries. I'll never forget when he told me how he hired box boys. The front of the store had all the cash registers as you walked in and up on the upper left and the second level was his office, which had a big glass window. So, he could look down on the front of the store and all the cash registers and he had to go down a long hall and then turn into the storeroom and then run up these stairs to get to his office. We'd meet bag boys at the front of his store. He'd say, okay, Bill, now come with me. And he'd turn around and basically run through the storeroom room and up the stairs. He'd turn around at the foot of the stairs before he entered the office to look to see where the person was or where you were or where I was. If you weren't right on his heels, he wouldn't hire you. Before the interview even started, he just wanted kids with hustle that were going to move. And his way of testing that was running back to his office <laughs> and seeing if people kept up. I loved it. I loved it.
1: Now, did you ever find out whether he had some sort of track background?
0: <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. He was a very thin guy kept kept in pretty good shape. So, he may very well have. I can tell you one thing. He had an unbelievable amount of energy and he just was always moving and always working.
1: Well, it's fabulous to have learned from someone by their example. And I'm sure that that still stayed with you early in your career. Jim, do you remember a time when you were looking to help explain something to someone and maybe you realized, I can't tell them, I need to show them like Dave showed me. Can you share an example of what happened?
0: There was a time when I was actually taking ditches for a summer job. It's hard to explain people exactly what you're doing and what you need them to do. The best thing to do is to show them, this is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. Watch me do this. It's the old medical training phrase, see one, do one, teach one. Residents learn to see one, then they do one, then they teach one. I think the same thing is true in a lot of things we do. Let me show you what to do, and then you can do it, as opposed to just throwing you into the fire and saying, figure it out yourself.
1: What's interesting is that as management consultants and coaches now, we're working with leaders who are looking to get better, who are looking to improve what they do. And you can't always just say, watch me, because you haven't done what they're doing. Jim, tell me, what is it that you are doing today, your current responsibilities and the kinds of people that you help?
0: Bill, I have been consulting since 2000 and I've worked with over 100 companies. The sweet spot of our firm is helping medical device companies get their products into the US hospital marketplace. We still have people that work with me that do that. Personally, I've wanted to do less consulting and I'm still doing some and move to coaching and mentoring mentoring. I got a certificate from University of Texas at Dallas in 2019 in executive and professional coaching and that's how I'm spending the vast majority of my time now. I'm coaching business executives and mentoring business executives.
1: What are the types of symptoms that someone could be experiencing when they say, oh gosh, I'd better reach out to Jim?
0: Yeah, I think a big challenge right now, Bill, is where will return to work happen and what will it look for and in what format everybody is struggling with the answer, if there is an answer or the approach or the tactic. There's a lot of work-life balance issues at all levels because we've made it so easy to stay connected. People are feeling really pressured to stay connected and work-life balance is really a huge problem. The younger folks I deal with are very career-oriented. What is my potential? What are my gaps? What am I missing? How do I fill those gaps? How do I get promoted? How do I Navigate a company. A lot of people I've talked to navigated a big enterprise. How do I do that? How do I build mentors? How do I build a network? How do I get myself known? How do I do that without being too high pressure? Without looking like all I want to do is getting promoted. The flip flop of that is you and I talked about earlier before we started the recording. If you're a senior executive or senior business owner, and you may or may not have a board, and you may or may not have a large staff, you don't necessarily necessarily want to talk to your board or talk to your staff about things. And having somebody you can talk to as a coach or a mentor can be really helpful.
1: There are a lot of issues that many of which you raised. One that strikes me after reading your book is the idea that there are some people who simply want to go back to the way it was before. They just say, make everyone come back in. That's why we did this. That's why we hired them. We just want to bring everyone back 100%. And we'll start off at three days a week. But by three months from now, we want to be at 100% in office the way things were. I think that they're not taking things in the way that people's responsibilities have changed, the way that commitments have grown and expanded. And I wonder how you address that with helping them think through those issues when they start off not saying, I want a solution that's going to be good for all members of our company. And we want to be productive, but also have good work-life balance. But instead they say, tell me what we need to do to get everyone back to this idyllic state that I think occurred, even though it really didn't. But I just want everyone back in the office because I feel anxious that people aren't here using this nice, expensive commercial real estate that we've leased.
0: Yeah, I think it's a tough reality, Bill, but the the reality is you probably don't need that large, expensive real estate space that you've got now. That's a different problem than forcing people back because you have a problem. Address the problem. There may be alternative ways to use that space. Maybe you want to sell the space. There Are some jobs that, due to the nature of their job, it's important for people to be in office. But I think the vast majority of jobs now can be done effectively remotely. And I've been surprised, Bill, at the number of people who are later generations, 55 something or plus, who have mandated return to work. That's it. We're all going back into the office. I think and would have hoped and expected the learning from the pandemic would have been greater, deeper, and more meaningful than what's happened. And some people have just refused to accept the new reality. Employees are so much happier now because they're not spending so much time commuting. Then you had the complexity of $5 a gallon gas. They couldn't afford it. I talked to a lady, I was coaching and her son was working for a company. I can't remember which one it was. It was Best Buy or somebody like that. They were actually giving their employees gas cards because they knew it was hard for them to get to work. Things were so expensive. Look at the great things, Bill, we did during the pandemic. Look at how companies of all sizes pivoted and all of a sudden started doing things they never thought they were capable of doing. The same thing in my mind is true for the return to work.
1: Jim, let me ask you, have you worked with a company that has made progress towards successfully pivoting and either declared we're going to always be working remotely and let's support people in doing that, or they've come up with a hybrid policy that's been effective, not because it's the answer for everyone, but because the approach that they took really took all the stakeholders' situations, desires, needs, and wants into account.
0: (laughs) I have talked to a gentleman he works for, a large company. And what they've done is they've gone through and tried as hard as possible to classify every position. They've looked at every position uniquely as to whether or not this position really needs to be in the office, whether or not this position needs to be in the office at all, and whether or not the position is a hybrid position. They've given a classification system to all the managers. They're trying Hard not to be prescriptive and coat the cake with one level of frosting and everybody's going to be X, Y, or Z. They're taking a very unique individualistic approach. And I like that a lot. Then it's up to the manager for those that are hybrid to figure out what that cadence will be. They're giving the managers power to figure out okay, if it's not 100% remote, it's not 100% in the office, then what will that hybrid piece look like? They're really important powering the managers and the leaders to try to be as flexible for the employees as possible, which I thought was a fabulous start.
1: One of the other complaints that I hear week in and week out still is that managers don't know if people are working if they don't see them. Have you heard that? Share with me how you respond when a manager says, I just don't know if my team is doing the job that they can do or if there's more potential and I don't know how to create that balance between asking them
0: for more and stepping back and trusting them. It's interesting, Bill. This has been something that's been a problem long before the pandemic. And I coach my clients on this topic. And I've not seen data on this. I'm just telling you a 40 year career observation. Some managers assume that if they're not hearing anything, that everything's going just fine. If I don't hear from Wet Rich, Wet Rich is probably fine. The flip flop of that, Bill, and the thing that I warn my clients about there are a number of managers who when they hear nothing, assume nothing's happening. They're like, obviously, Wetrich isn't doing anything because I hadn't heard from him in weeks. My assumption is nothing's happening because if something was happening, he'd tell me about it. You have to understand where your manager is, right? Where is your manager on this spectrum? It's their mindset. It's
1: their assumption as to what's happening when they don't hear
0: feedback, request for help. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fast forward and you've got the complexity of now where we're not around people, so we can't even see them other than on Zoom. And now we're really wondering about whether or not people really are working or if they're working hard. I talked to a lady the other day with a large company, her name's Janet, and she was observing that one of her employees, she runs quality systems at a very large food manufacturer. She can't get a hold of the guy. She sees he's logged on in his computer, he's on Teams, but when she sends him a team message she never hears from him or hears from him very late. He appears like he's on, but he doesn't actually act like he's on. There is a little bit of that. As you know, Bill, there's all kinds of sophisticated tracking software and things like that, productivity tools. I'm agnostic. I don't want to be tracked. I don't want my manager knowing if I'm typing or if I'm not typing or whatever. It's a little bit too Big brotherish for me. But there are tools that companies can use to see if people really are aware working in jobs that aren't something where production's got to happen all the time, like processing invoices or paying invoices or putting uh, information in medical records or sending out bills for physician services. If the bills are going out, if the people are working. I think that all goes back to
1: establishing the right KPIs and saying, we have a business, we have a workflow, and you're responsible for this part to this part. And your output is something that we're looking to measure to make sure that everyone else along that workflow, that value chain is being supported by your participation. I think that when people get too deep into what's happening now, when the end point is being reached, that crosses into micromanagement for me. What's the point where an activity or policy crosses into micromanagement for you? And how do you recognize it? What's the danger that people need to be reminded of or learn about with micromanaging?
0: Bill, it's a great question. Part of the sort of generic advice and counsel I give to people, particularly newer managers, is we go into a management situation thinking, oh gosh, I've got to be fair. To be fair, I need to treat everyone the same. Actually, no, you don't. If I'm working for you, you may find that I need a lot more attention and time than somebody else who's also working for you. Now, you don't want it to be such a point that I'm not getting my work done and too much of a drag on you, but we to look at each unique individual that we're managing and figure out how much latitude, how much help, how much assistance, or lack thereof, do they need? Again, that's, I think, the mistake that managers make. They try to treat everyone the same and we all need to be treated differently and uniquely.
1: That's very important, especially with people at different phases of their growth curve. At the beginning, you give people new assignments, new responsibilities. You need to put in more support and attention there. I think that managers ought to be setting up boundaries and saying, I'm going to put in a lot of intensive help to support you, get to this level of performance, and we want to see that happened this month over the next four weeks. And then we're going to assess, do we need to put in just a little bit more time and help and feedback? Or are you there? Can you meet it sooner? But we want to get you up to this level of performance by this point in time. Everyone knows that if you're very explicit about it. It's when people hide those metrics or those rules that they're actually looking to fulfill that causes problems. You've written in your book that it's important to make sure that you're explicit and above board with what you say. Can you share an example of where that made a difference? Where a manager was not not sharing information that would have been helpful to his team, you observe that because as an outsider, it's patently clear that this needs to be shared so that people know what targets they're aiming for.
0: Can you share an example like that? Sure, Bill. There was a senior manager in an organization I worked at His name was Mike, and he ran a very large sales organization, hundreds and hundreds of people in the US. He basically told the salespeople, if you wanted to be a manager, you had to come into headquarters and do this job, X, Y, Z for a year or two. No one's going to go from being a sales rep to a manager without coming to headquarters and doing this other job. Very clear. That's the path. A lot of people wanted to be on the path to manager. About a month later, something happened and they needed to fill a manager's job and they promoted a person from the local market directly into manager. 100% in violation of what the guy had just said to the whole organization. What he should have said when he was talking about this career path is this is the intended path. We're going going to expect, but we reserve the right to make alterations to this path and plan. But no, he decreed it like this is what's going to happen. And then a month later, it didn't happen. Boom, his credibility goes down about 10 notches because what's going to be next? It's very stifling. It really is to an organization. Be careful when you have these decrees to think about what am I really trying to do here? And what's the best way to do it? The
1: map is not reality. It's just a map. Correct. It's exactly right. Well said. Jim, how did you help Mike out of this situation? If that was your responsibility at the time, was to help him
0: think through how to step back and recover from this fumble? Wasn't directly involved in that. But if I had, I would have pointed out and told him about the feedback and how demotivating it was. And there's all kinds of ways he could have done a quick pulse survey. He could have asked the sales organization, give me some feedback on this recent move with this person in this market who got promoted and I guarantee you he would have heard the message. Sometimes hearing it from a broader group as opposed to one person because if it's just me working with him, hey, it's just Wetridge. That's Wetridge's opinion. If you have 50 or 100 other people saying the same thing, it's probably got some legs to it.
1: People say that one of the benefits of working with an executive coach like yourself is that you get to learn from other people's mistakes, other people's errors, other people's misjudgments. What are one or two stories That you can recall where that made a difference. What I always say is that it shaves time off your learning curve, where it might have taken you two years to learn that this pattern, this policy, this approach just doesn't work. You can help people learn by other people's mistakes, read about what decisions they made and the consequences that occurred. What do you use to help bring that out? And what's an example or two of people you've worked with in that way?
0: One of the key examples that I give is most recently was written about by the former chairman and CEO of General Electric, Jeff Immeld, in his book, Hot Seat. And Jeff admits he made a number of blunders in his time there, one of which was he never said, I don't know. He's gone on record in the book and interviews about the book saying, I wish I'd said, I don't know more often. We feel as business owners, we feel as entrepreneurs we feel as managers, we feel as leaders, we have to know everything. That's why we got where we are. I know everything. And you have the answers. You can't always have the answers. Now, the thing that's important, Bill, is there are some things you should know and understanding what you should know is important too. If I'm the marketing person and I'm selling this bottle of water, you can't see it, but I'm holding up a bottle of water, typical bottle of water you buy in a grocery store and I'm working for you and you say, Jim, what's the average sales selling price today of that bottle of water that we're selling. And I say, Bill, I don't know. You're going to wonder how long I'm going to last. This is my job. But if you say, hey, Jim, we make this bottle of water in six different plants in three different continents. Can you tell me the average output per hour of that bottle on the different plants? No, Bill, I have no idea, but I'll find out. I'll call the plant managers and I'll find out. I've actually had a manager years ago, a manager's manager, my general manager after result of a budget review who I told the division president, Sarah was her name. And the president asked me a question and I said, I don't know. After the budget review, she came into my office and just chewed me up one side, down the other. She said, I don't care if you have to make something up. She said, I don't want you to ever tell that person again, you don't know. I thought, wow, there is subtlety there. There are things I should know, but I can't possibly know everything. That was
1: something where Superior was chewing you out and you were saying, gosh, I see that there's a point to what you're saying. There's probably more that I I could know, but never say I don't know to a supervisor, I think that was really risky
0: advice that she was giving you there. I agree. I went home and reflected on it. I went back and talked to my boss who worked for that person and said, look, I can't. I'm not going to lie to a guy who's running a $2 billion business. I mean, he's smart. He got to that role for a lot of different reasons and I'm not going to lie to him. Shame on me if there's something I don't know. That's on me. Within your responsibilities. Correct.
1: What do you advise leaders, CEOs of companies and senior managers to do in order to make that explicit within their companies? Because a lot of times we learn things by other people's mistakes and we're in meetings and we see managers make a mistake and we learn from that mistake. And that makes us a stronger contributor or manager ourselves. When we're not part of these meetings, because maybe we just don't have the opportunity to sit in like we used to in conference rooms, what do you advise people to do to learn about this as part of their navigating the culture of an organization?
0: I do try to Encourage people to give folks that access because I do know and we do know that it's more difficult, right? There aren't those learning opportunities and we've got to be really intentional about recreating those. It's really important so people can see firsthand, even if they're being observing, it's part of it and it's the tone at the top, Bill. It's culture. I have a section in my book where I talk about psychological safety. It's something that Google has made very popular and they've found through their research that having a culture of psychological safety, is the number one most important thing in team success at Google. What does that mean? It means I can speak. I may say something that's not right, may say something that isn't going to work, but I'm not going to be penalized for speaking up. That notion of having a safe environment to have conversations, I think is really important. So people can learn, but not at an expense in a process like that.
1: What's interesting is that it's important for managers to have the language to be able to say, is this something that is a performance conversation where we're talking about making the right decisions and having accurate data, or is it a developmental conversation where we're talking about, tell me how you think about this, what would you do? Let's brainstorm some opportunities and approaches. And they may not all be perfect, they may not all be right, but we're going to learn and help you develop your thinking this way. And it's one thing that I hope that everyone listening can make that distinction and draw out and say to people, let's have a conversation for the next 30 minutes, and I want this to be a developmental conversation where you're not going to be held responsible, but we want to help you think better because that's part of the mentoring that goes on. What's one of your favorite tips, Jim, about helping people mentor others as managers so it's not just holding them accountable for producing
0: results, but also developing their ability to grow within the organization? Two things, Bill, along those lines. One thing that I strongly suggest managers to do, particularly new manager, and by new, I don't mean whether or not they've been a manager manager for a long period of time. I mean, new in the role. When we come into an organization, like when I came into my last job at Munlaka, Barbara was my VP of sales and Bruce was my CFO and Randy was my VP of marketing and Roger was my CHRO. We as managers tend to come into these organizations and see people in the roles they're in. What I suggest to managers is get a copy of all those people's resumes, CVs, and bios. Barbara started off as an accountant doing audit work here ago. She's had a number of roles in marketing, right? She's done all kinds of things. Our mind says, oh, she's a salesperson. She's VP of sales. Get to know those people all the way back to see where they came from and how they got there. And then that will help you figure out where the developmental opportunities are and do it in conjunction with the people. What is it really that excites you? What's your passion? What are the gaps today? And what do you want to learn so that you can think about what your next step or next steps are? What's really exciting to you? But we've got to have more non-transactional time. By that, they mean, look, let's not talk about the business. We're missing the conversation going out to lunch. We're missing the conversation going out to have a cup of coffee. We're missing the conversation walking to and from the parking lot as we're coming to work and going home from work. We've got to, as managers, make up for these non transactional times by having conversations just like you're suggesting.
1: I love those two tips, Jim. Now I have a question for you. Are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round?
0: <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> (laughs) Of
1: course. Getting into the interview, we talked about someone who influenced or inspired you. And you mentioned Dave, who was your manager at the grocery store growing up. When you were
0: a teenager, Jim, what was the song that you loved? When I was a teenager, gosh, that's a tough one because that was the 70s. There's a couple thousand. I would say I'm still a huge fan of Led Zeppelin and Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, that's one of my all-time go-to songs. I've actually saw them play in 1973 at the LA Forum. In your business, what are two KPIs that you follow to track success today? Obviously, revenue, right? What's the revenue coming in? The second is customer satisfaction. Get I get feedback from my coaching sessions and that feedback in terms of how valuable it was for the coachee, for the client is very helpful. Because at the end of the day, even though they're coachees and their clients, they're customers and I want them to feel like our time together is helpful to them. Yeah, revenue is important, but what's more important is that they feel that they're making progress and growing as a result of our conversations.
1: What's your definition of personal success? Not success of your business, but you answer the question,
0: I know I'm being successful when? I know I'm being successful when somebody tells me that I've had a meaningful impact on their life and their career.
1: What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the
0: last year? I've really tried to stop and minimize the amount of time I'm spending on busy work slash email. I've really reduced that a lot.
1: What would you be one of the tips that you wish that you had learned when you started that you know now?
0: How much time can get destroyed in just busy work?
1: There are distinctions, Jim, between the kind of work that requires thinking and internal processes and work that's more externally focused, arranging a warehouse, unloading trucks. In your book, you talk about the importance of mindset. We're both fans of Carol Dweck. We've read her works and we apply it to our clients. How do you help people who are leaders today, who are looking to manage people, manage complex businesses remotely and bring people together. What do you tell them that is important to managing their mindset as a way of
0: being an effective leader? I refer them to her work, first of all. I think it's fabulous. It's well-documented. It's highly quantitative. And I've had any number of people I've referred her works to that have actually given them to their kids, their teenage daughters or whatever. There's a lady named Sarah in Las Vegas who I coach. She's in a big sales position with a very large medical device company and she gave it to her daughter, her teenage daughter, and they absolutely loved it. I think just figuring out, Bill, if you've got a growth mindset or a fixed mindset and how to think more about having a growth mindset and understanding the power of that and having the people on your team understand the power of that, I think think is really helpful. You've been so helpful
1: and generous with sharing your insight and your wisdom and your experience with me and everyone listening today. Jim Wetrich, I just want to thank you again so much for joining me on my quest for the best. We talked about your early experience in watching David who ran a grocery store, conduct his interview by starting with a sprint. And if you didn't keep up, you didn't show hustle, the interview is probably over. And it's really teaching people to think about it's not so much what we say, because you could be asked, are you a hustler? And they could reply yes, but it's what you do. It's what you show day in and day out. We talked about the example of a senior manager and how she was able to use better tools for managing her sales managers and looking at the organization. We talked about the example where someone said at the outset, no one is going to be hired into a sales manager role unless they do a particular stint at this office. And then a month later, they hired someone directly without doing the stint into the office. And it caused the kind of problem that can be avoided if you're just more careful in making those kinds of pronouncements and you take everyone's information and wishes and needs and desires into account ahead of time. We made sure that we included the discussion around Jeffrey Immelt, who said that he wished that he had said, I don't know more often. And as a reminder to everyone listening, we don't have all the answers, but as leaders, we could ask good questions, hold people accountable, and make sure that we create a culture that doesn't stifle our people. For these reasons, so many more. Jim Wetfield, author of Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best.
0: Bill, thank you so much. It's been a delightful conversation with you today. Jim, before we say goodbye for now, where is it we could find out more? more about you and your work online. You can go to jimwetrich.com and you can also find me at James G. Wetrich on LinkedIn. I'd be delighted to help anybody I can.
1: Jim, we're going to link to jimwetrich.com in our show notes, as well as your social media, as well as places to buy your book so that people could find it super easy to keep up with what you're doing. Jim Wetrich, author of Stifled, Where Good Leaders Go Wrong. Once again, thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.